Our call to worship this morning is Psalm 123. Lord, I look up to you, up to heaven where you rule. As a servant depends on the master, as a maid depends on the mistress, so we will keep looking to you, O Lord our God, until you have mercy on us. Be merciful to us, Lord, be merciful. We have been treated with so much contempt. We've been mocked too long by the rich and scorned by proud oppressors. And so let us come together in prayer to God. Let us pray. God says, You are never too young and never too old to share in my work, to be part of my kingdom. Jesus says, you are never too clever and never too simple to learn from me, to grow in understanding. The Spirit says, you are never too worldly and never too holy to be beyond my reach, to be unable to change. Holy God, Meet us just as we are now, with our needs and desires, hopes and fears, questions and certainties. Help us not only to hear your voice, but to follow your call to come or to go. Amen. first reading this morning is from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. God is calling Ezekiel to be a prophet. When I saw this, I fell down on the ground. Then I heard a voice saying, Mortal man, stand up. I want to talk to you. While the voice was speaking, God's spirit entered me and raised me to my feet. And I heard the voice continue. Mortal man, I am sending you to the people of Israel. They have rebelled and turned against me and are still rebels, just as their ancestors were. They are stubborn and do not respect me. So I'm sending you to tell them what I, the sovereign Lord, am saying to them. Whether those rebels listen to you or not, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Second reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. Jesus is rejected at Nazareth. Jesus left that place and went back to his hometown, followed by his disciples. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many people were there, and when they heard them, they were all amazed. Where did he get all this, they asked. What wisdom is this that has been given him? How does he perform miracles? Isn't he the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters living here? And so they rejected him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is respected everywhere except in his own hometown 
and by his relatives and his family. He was not able to perform any miracles there, except that he had placed his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He was greatly surprised because the people did not have faith. Then Jesus went to the villages around there teaching the people. He called the twelve disciples together and sent them out two by two. He gave them authority over the evil spirits and ordered them, don't take anything with you on your journey except a stick, no bread, no beggar's bag, no money in your pockets. Wear sandals, but don't carry an extra shirt. He also said, wherever you are welcomed, stay in the same house until you leave that place. If you come to a town where people do not welcome you or will not listen to you, leave it and shake the dust off your feet. That will be a warning to them. So they went out and preached that people should turn away from their sins. They drove out many demons and rubbed olive oil on many sick people and healed them. Amen. Well, I'm going to start by asking you to use your imagination and do a bit of remembering. I would like you to take a moment to remember yourself at the age of seven. Now, for some of us, that will be easier than others. I recognize that. But if you can't remember seven exactly, around about that age. And particularly to think about yourself at school. Imagine yourself in a classroom when you're about seven years of age. Think about what that looks like. How are the tables or desks arranged? Who's your teacher? What lessons are you having? What kind of things do you do in those lessons? What is it you enjoy? And what is it you don't like? Now, I want you to imagine you are about 14. I've chosen that age quite carefully because the school leaving age in Britain has shifted during the lifetime of this congregation. But I think at 14, everybody would still have been at school, even if some were just about to leave. Some of you will have been making choices about what subjects you wanted to study. Some of you, as I say, would have been getting ready to go out into the workplace. I want you to think of one of the lessons you enjoyed. Think of the classroom or the workshop or the laboratory or whatever it is where that took place. Think about how the teacher worked with you and why you enjoyed that subject particularly because you've all chosen a subject, so why that subject? What was it about that subject, that teacher, that way of learning that appealed? And now I want you to imagine yourself at age 21. I think everybody this morning is, apart from Paul, is 21. So you'll have to imagine yourself at the age you are, Paul. 21 or the age you are now. 
Most people at 21 will have finished or just about finished their ad academic education or apprenticeship. Most people at that age will be living an adult life. So what is it you are doing at that age, or the age you are now? What new things are you learning, and how are you learning them? And then lastly, in the present, at the age you are now, what new thing have you learned recently? It might be a skill that you have gained, new knowledge that you've acquired, new understanding. It could be anything whatsoever. How did you learn it? Do you keep learning new things? And if so, how do you go about learning new things and finding new things to learn? And if you don't keep learning new things, why is that? At different times in our lives and in different contexts, the ways in which we are taught or trained will vary quite considerably partly depending on the purpose of that training. In our everyday lives, we quite often speak about lifelong learning. The fact there is always something new to discover or understand, some new skill to develop, some new interest to enjoy. But what about in church? How do we prepare people for lives of discipleship? Most churches offer some kind of Sunday school, although they will call that all sorts of different things, which combines age-appropriate worship with a didactic purpose of imparting knowledge about faith to children and young people. Many churches will have baptism or membership classes, which function as a kind of catechesis, concerned with issues of belief and expectations for practice. And then there are things like Alpha and Emmaus, which are used evangelistically, but basically are didactic. They give information about faith, and they're actually concerned with leading people to own that faith, to make a decision that, yep, I sign up to this set of beliefs. A few churches will attempt some kind of follow-up to baptism or membership or an evangelistic outreach, I've heard of things such as beta courses. I think people perhaps don't quite understand their Greek alphabet very well, but never mind. Uh, or omega courses, in fact, sometimes. But, you know, letters are less important than the content. Some churches have discipleship groups. But even here, what tends to happen is we get a small group of people talking about stuff, developing ideas, but not really learning to be disciples. I think there's an important distinction between learning about and learning to do or to be. When I was learning to be an engineer a very long time ago, I spent two years in university. I then went out into industry for a year and worked, and then I went back into university for my final year. When I was learning to be a minister, I spent two days a week in college, 
two days a week in a church and one day a week in a community project. There was some balance between learning and doing that was important. And I know a lot of education nowadays, formally, has a bigger balance of doing with the learning, or learning by doing, perhaps. It seems to me that it's very important and very useful for us to think about how Jesus trained his disciples, about what life might have looked like in the Rabbi Jesus School of Practical Discipleship, as I've chosen to call it. The passage we heard from Mark's Gospel can be divided into three parts. If you're interested, you'll see how how it goes as we go along. We start off back home in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. He returned there with his followers after an extended period of travelling around Galilee. And these are the stories we've looked at over the last few weeks. As the disciples have travelled with Jesus, they've heard stories. And they've been invited to think about what those stories mean. They've watched how Jesus has power over the elements still in the storm and healing sick people. They've actually realized some of the physical limitations that apply. The fact that Jesus can't be in two places at once, as both Jairus and the woman came with requests, if not vocalized, at least thought for healing. There's been a lot of listening and watching, and one heck of a lot of travelling, it has to be said. So the twelve are becoming more and more intrigued by Jesus. Something's always happening. There's always something to talk about, something to discover. And now they are about to face a very unexpected lesson. I wonder how many of you can remember when we started this series of services how we heard that Jesus' family arrived to take charge of him. They thought he'd gone mad, and they wanted to take him home. But they actually went home without him. Did they wonder, I wonder, the disciples, as they went to Nazareth, where Jesus' family lived, how people would receive them? Would people still think Jesus was mad? Would people welcome them? What would it be like? Well, they were in for a very rude awakening, weren't they? Back at home, people recalled Jesus as a boy. They said, oh yeah, we know him. We know who his family are. We know his mum, his brothers and his sisters. We know he used to work as a carpenter. We know all about him. Rather than being impressed by what Jesus had already done and taught, they were dismissive and even critical. We're told that Jesus couldn't do a fat lot when he was there. Because nobody would take him seriously. There was no faith. Nobody believed that he was important. They just weren't interested. And I wonder if that rings any bells for anybody. Have you ever been in a position where you were really excited and inspired by something you've learned or experienced, only to get your enthusiasm dampened by the people who knew you before that? why Jesus took his followers to Nazareth, to this place of scepticism and rejection? What was the point? What was he trying to teach them by doing that? I wonder if it was that they hadn't yet grasped the cost of discipleship, and in particular its potential impact on relationships with family and friends. 
was it all still so shiny and new and exciting that it just hadn't crossed their minds? That not everybody they knew and not everybody they loved would share that enthusiasm. After a fraught and unpleasant encounter, we get the next part of the story in half a verse. So small that we can easily miss it. Mark chapter 6, verse 6b. But it must refer to an extended period of time. Because Jesus and the disciples travel around the local villages teaching the people. Now, the author of Mark obviously thinks there's no point in telling us what happened there. It's not important. It doesn't tell us how long it was. But for some unspecified period of time, Jesus and the 12 disciples travelled around local villages teaching, perhaps having meals with people, perhaps chatting to people. And all the time, the disciples were listening and watching. Jesus spoke and they listened. Jesus did something and they watched. They're learning more and more about who Jesus is, about who he believes himself to be. I wonder if any of that rings any bells for you. Just that they went around visiting the other places, you know, life went on. Is that how it feels for you? Nothing exciting or new, no mind-blowing experiences. Just a steady plod on in the shadow of the Galilean carpenter, hearing what he has to say, watching what he does, slowly but surely learning more about him. Or maybe not learning anymore, because we've got saturated minds and sluggish attitudes. It's all so familiar. We think we know this stuff anyway. Is there a possibility that we're stuck at verse 6b? I think there might be. But then the story takes an unexpected turn. After a period of time in which disciples have watched Jesus and listened to what he has to say, everything changes as he sends them off to put into practice what they've learned. Whatever it is we learn, whatever you thought about at the start of this sermon when I invited you to remember learning experiences, whatever it's formal education or vocational training or Christian catechesis, whatever it is, a point comes when it has to move from theory to practice. It could be argued, and some writers have done so, that what Jesus does here is actually a very 21st century educational model where he sends his students out on placement to go and apply what they've learned in the classroom and to learn from the experiences they have. You see, Jesus' followers could quite happily have followed him round indefinitely. But it was only when they were sent out that they moved from being learners about to learners of Jesus. The first thing Jesus did was to split his followers into pairs. Now, I've had a lot of fun this week trying to think Who might have been paired up with who, or whom with whom? I'm never quite sure of the the grammar there. 
Who did Thomas get paired up with? You know, Thomas asked questions. Or Judas, the man who carried the money bag and would ultimately betray Jesus. Or Matthew, the former collaborator. Or Simon, the anti-Roman zealot. Who went out with who? Now, it's possible, because nobody tells us, that they chose their own partners. But I think there's something intriguing there about thinking, what might it be like to be paired up to work with somebody whose personality and gifts are very different from your own? Could it be that Jesus wants us to work with the very person who makes us feel uncomfortable? So just for a moment... Who in this congregation, or your own congregation if you're a visitor, who would you really rather Jesus didn't ask you to work with? Because there'll be somebody. There'll be somebody that you don't want Jesus to pair you up with. It could be the person who rubs you up the wrong way. It could be the person whose theological perspective you can't share. But in the Jesus School of Practical Discipleship, it's possible that that's the very person we find ourselves paired up with. I remember when I was doing my research uh, course, we were paired up for something, and I spoke to the tutor afterwards. I said, you put a lot of thought into that, didn't you? Uh, Pairing up, did you? And I split you up from so-and-so, because I knew that put you two together would be dangerous. So easy to work with the people who think like us, the people who we naturally relate to, much more difficult to work with with the people who we wouldn't choose. And yet, I can honestly say, I learned a lot from working with that person. The next thing Jesus does, he says, right, now turn out your pockets. Leave behind anything and everything that gives you independence, security, and self-reliance. No money. So, in our time, no credit card, no bank book. No food. Not even a Mars bar, Will, I'm sorry. Not even a Mars bar. No spare clothes. Just go as you are. Live out this faith you profess. Stick together with your partner. Seek hospitality. Learn to receive from other people. Oh, and by the way, do the things you've seen me doing. Telling good news healing people, or at least anointing them and praying for them, meeting their needs. It's quite scary, isn't it, this Jesus school of practical discipleship? Just get out there and do it. I wonder what Jesus did whilst they were off on their experiential learning placement. For that matter, I wonder how long it lasted, because nobody tells us. Was it a few days a few weeks, a few months? Was it a fixed time, like so many of the placements we have in our education systems? Or was it, as is so often the case in Scripture, some vague, unspecified time? And what does that mean for us, anyway? Would we be willing to go out on the placement that Jesus assigns to us even if it's for a very, very long time indeed, and he's not going to tell us how long that is. Are we prepared to learn by doing? Are we prepared to risk rejection 
or ridicule because Jesus told his disciples that that was something that might happen? Are we ready to learn with and from those with whom we might disagree? Or do we just want a nice quick fix? The record of scripture doesn't tell us how long this excursion lasted. But we do know that it eventually came to an end. That disciples returned to Jesus with amazing stories of what they'd experienced. And they were really enthused to carry on the work. We also know, because we've read more of the gospel, that they still had an awful lot to learn. There was an awful lot they hadn't grasped. And they were by no means yet fully qualified disciples. Perhaps we need to remember that for ourselves too. One of the dangers for all Christians, especially those of long standing, is we get lethargic, even complacent, and dare I say, lazy. We get comfortable listening to familiar stories, not listening to hear God speaking afresh through them, but rather reinforcing what we think we already know. And even if we listen, I think we can get so used to consuming. We listen without acting. We watch without joining in. We cling to what we like to do. We read the stories that we like what they say. And we distance ourselves from the things that challenge us. We kind of stay in a safe, comfortable place. We could all pass the theory exams with top marks. I bet if we had a scripture exam, we'd all get good marks, wouldn't we? But do we get our hands dirty? Do we get out there with the practical discipleship? Jesus sends us out to put into practice what it is we claim we believe and to learn what it means to be his disciples. And he waits patiently for as long as it takes, waiting to hear our excited voices saying, guess what, Jesus, I've discovered this. Jesus says, you and you, you with you and you with you. Out you go. Go and put into practice what you've learned. So the question today, then, is will we? We come to that partner service where we bring our prayers for others to our Lord. Loving Lord, we bring before you our prayers not as a wish list, but rather those things that cause us concern personally or as part of your wider creation. We live in a complicated world which just seems to get more and more complicated as time passes. We find ourselves attracted by our involvement in the Olympic Games, proud to be the host country and looking forward to two and a half weeks of exciting competition. For a moment... The world seems to be genuinely a fellowship of nations. We know, however, that in many parts of the world there is violence which breeds poverty 
and famine, that there are conflicts that prevent healthcare reforms and corruption which stands in the way of development. Complications are not just in conflict. Our world is driven by commerce and too often commerce driven by greed. Complex banking difficulties start with greed and go on to disasters which disproportionately affect the poorest in our societies. We pray that those in positions of commercial power will gain an insight into the effects of risky speculation and that that insight will temper greed. We pray that in some way a new spirit can be engendered among all nations that instead of being driven by greed, lust for power or even fanatical religious belief, the peoples of our fractured world may be moved by a common humanity, that the peaceful Olympics may give rise to changes that man to man the world o'er shall brothers be. We pray in particular for those who are called into your service as your disciples did and who serve in the name of Jesus across the world. Be with them in the steady ongoing activities in areas where law prevails and protect them where danger is a daily risk. In our own land, we pray for those who directly or indirectly are affected by the actions of others. The family of the soldier killed in Afghanistan, the worker unemployed for long months because of the financial crisis, itself triggered by the greed of others. We pray that you will give them all your peace. We pray too for those who are victims of illness. Be with those in pain or in fear as they face life-threatening conditions for the families of those affected and for those afflicted by the loss of a loved one. We pray you give them all your peace. And for ourselves, we ask that through your grace we be given the resolve to be true disciples, taking into a largely indifferent world the loving influence central to our belief. All these things we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So send us, Lord Jesus, we who are confident and we who are terrified. Send us to the places you long for us to serve you, to be and to speak good news. And then bring us back rejoicing at the wonders you've shown us, the things we have discovered, the new delights you have for us. For we offer ourselves and we make our prayers in your name. Amen.